Thank you, Leo Day. How I wish I could do that, but that belongs to another era in heaven. And uh, so uh, I appreciate it very much, and thank you, Jeff Bingham, for reading a very appropriate passage of Scripture. Because on January the 21st, 1525, as you have heard uh, Dr. Blazing mention a moment ago, there was a group of men who assembled at the home of Felix Mons just a few blocks away, actually only a block and a half away from the Grossmünster, the big church in uh, Zurich. And they assembled because they were normally assembled at the church. And at the church, they did something very faithful. I don't want you to ever forget what they did. They met with Ulrich Zwingli, the pastor of the church, and they met for the purpose of determining what the Bible said about life and the church and salvation and the return of the Lord. They made a faithful mistake. They studied from the Greek New Testament. An open mind and an open Greek New Testament will produce a Baptist every time. And don't ever forget that. That's exactly what happened. As they studied the Greek New Testament together, they became unalterably convinced that the Reformation, while it had made a wonderful start, and while they were grateful for Luther and Calvin and all of the other of the army of reformers who had begun such a wonderful work and understood the necessity of God's word, they concluded at length that they had not gone far enough. And they pressed Pastor Ulrich Zwingli to take the Reformation all the way. Zwingli replied, I don't know. I will take it to the town council and see what they say. That is always the wrong thing to say to a burgeoning Baptist. The town council doesn't have anything to say about it, and that's exactly what they told Zwingli. They said it is not a matter of the town council. It is a matter of the word of God. And when God has spoken, the city council better get in line we do not answer to them. Zwingli, terrified at what hap might happen with the town council, refused to move. And so on that very eventful night on the 21st, uh, closest day today that we'll be assembled to that date, we uh, watched this little group of men assemble at the home of Felix Mons after they had for a long time talked and prayed and read God's word together. Finally, John Blaurock, uh, John could, uh, or, uh, George Blaurock, George Kajapab was actually his last name. Uh, George was uh, perhaps the most impetuous of the group, and he finally fell on his knees and cried out to Conrad Grable, for God's sake, baptize me as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, they hadn't discovered everything yet, and so they were using a milk pail for effusion. And so uh, they brought the milk pail out, and they uh, poured water over his head and baptized him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, you see, George had already been baptized. He was, as a matter of fact, a parish priest. 
but he was baptized as a baby. And he realized that he had nothing to do with that baptism. It was not a choice he made. It was a choice his parents made. And it had no real efficacy. It made no difference because he had no faith in the Lord. And somehow in the past two years as he had studied the Bible, he had become unalterably convinced that he needed to be born again. That's the language that he used to describe what needed to happen to him. And so he was marvelously saved. And now he knew, I need to have a baptism as a believer. I need to share my faith. The first great confession of faith for every man is his baptism. We sometimes get that wrong as a Baptist. And we say, well, walk down the aisle and make a profession of faith. No, walking down the aisle is walking down the aisle. And it's a good thing. It is appropriate to call people to decision. But the real first confession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is your baptism where the old man is laid away and the new man is raised up to walk in newness of life with Christ Jesus. And so they baptized John uh, George Blaurock and then uh, Blaurock baptized all the rest of them and the free church movement was born. Now, one of the things that made the free church movement different from the reformers was that they believed so thoroughly in the necessity of the new birth that they argued that that new birth ought to be clear in the life you live. Now, it's not that the reformers did not believe that there was admonition in the word of God that call for holiness and sanctification of life. They all believe that, it is true. But only in the teaching of these Anabaptists, which means rebaptizers, though they denied that they were rebaptizing anyone, nevertheless, they said, it must be taken seriously that the Bible calls us to newness of life. When we are baptized, we are raised to walk in newness of life. And so certain passages of Scripture became very precious to them. And you may look at the screen if you want to or look at it in your Bible better yet. But here in Romans chapter 13 and verses 11 to 14, we have the testimony of the Anabaptists, what they said was important. Listen to this. And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than it was on the day we believe. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light, the weapon of light, literally. And let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, and not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill it's lust. The Anabaptists said it is critical that we take that passage to heart and that we live in accord with its mandate. 
I want you to just notice a few things about the passage quickly today as we begin this semester. First, knowing the time. The word there for time is kairos. It is used in contrast oftentimes to chronos. Now, when anybody says to you, this Greek word always means this and this Greek word always means that, remember what they have actually told you. They have actually told you that they are ignorant men knowing very little of Greek. Oftentimes, these same Greek words are used interchangeably, but there is a noticeable difference in the nuance of these words. Chronos gives us our word chronology. Generally speaking, it is time as man counts time. But here the word is not chronos, but kairos. Knowing the kairos. What is the nuance of kairos? Kairos is the uniquely chosen time of God. It is the moment that God has determined for creation, for the salvation of mankind, for your salvation, for your baptism, for your walk with God. It's a kairotic moment, we say, a kairos, knowing that this is a kairos moment. You listen to the news and you would fold your hands in sorrow. Why, the world is out of control. Well, Hollywood has gone mad. Well, it's not hard for Hollywood to go mad. It started out mad. And why would it be surprised to anybody that it goes mad? And, and uh, uh, the government is in disarray. We don't even know whether we're going to be able to fund the government. Well, guess what? The Anabaptist said, I'm just telling you, it's a Kairos moment. It is the moment God has ordered. What a time to be preparing for the ministry. You're going into a world that hates you and despises you. Can you imagine anything more fun than that? You're going to have the opportunity to talk to people that don't love you, but you're going to love them and share the gracious gospel of Jesus Christ. So knowing that the kairos has come, that this is that precious moment, it's now time to wake up out of your sleep. Now that is an interesting word for sleep. Look at it there. That's the word hypnos. Hypnos gives us our word hypnosis. Hypnos, hypnosis is a, a sleep into which someone puts you. When I was a senior in high school, my father was elected to a denominational position, and they moved from Beaumont, my home, to Dallas. I asked if I could stay and finish high school. They say, where will you live? I said, I'll live in the YMCA. And so I got me a room in the YMCA, and there I lived. I was the only person on the whole row of, of rooms that did not smoke. Everybody was always coughing and hacking, and they would say, I wish I could get rid of this habit. And it just so happened that I read a book on hypnosis about that time. And uh, so I got to thinking about it, and I studied it as much as I could. And I said to a man, well, if you want to, I'll put you under hypnosis, and we'll break you of this habit. He said, are you kidding me? I said, no, I'm dead serious. You say, did you know for sure you could do it? No, I had no idea whether I could do it or not, but I figured might as well try on him. 
And so I brought him into the room with three or four others and it worked. I put him under hypnosis and I said, from now on, anytime you smell a weed, you're going to just hack more than ever before. You're going to be allergic to it. You're going to react to it. And so I lit a cigarette, put it under his nose, and the man literally ran from the room, ran over two or three people, getting outside to throw up. And so I decided, hey, this works. I mean, this is okay. And so I started doing it. We broke the whole floor of smoking. I mean, it was a wonderful development. And I just kept on doing it, learning more and more about it until I got to college. And, and uh, uh, one of my sweetmates came to me and he said, I'm failing this exam, this course, and I've got final exam. Will you put me under hypnosis and tell me to remember everything I read? At that point, I realized that hypnosis was not a godly enterprise. And I gave it up. I've never used it since. But I understand it very clearly. I can put a person to sleep and make him do whatever I say do. Used to in college when we were exercising this little uh, sleight of hand, I would put the guy to sleep and uh, yet he's still awake, but he is under my power. And I would bring in a mop, and I would say to him, you are looking at the most beautiful girl on the Hardin-Simmons campus. Take her and give her a kiss. And he would envelop the mop and give it a kiss. I tell you, it's amazing. Now, the Bible says we are all in the hypnotic trance of the devil. And it is time to wake up from the hypnos, wake up from the sleep, and see that this is a new chirotic moment, a new day. For now is our salvation. You see, salvation is past tense. We have been saved at a moment in time. If you have not been saved in that moment of time, then you need to be saved. Doesn't matter whether you're a seminary student or what you may be, pastor, doesn't matter. You have to have been saved. There has to have been a moment when godly sorrow worked repentance unto salvation. Without that, you may have the right doctrine. You may be able to preach the right kind of sermon, but you are lost. There has to be a moment when you realize that you are lost and cry out to God for your salvation. You say, well, but that would be embarrassing. I'm already a member of a church. No, remember all these Anabaptists who gathered in Felix Mons' home, they were all members of churches. They were all, they all knew what doctrine was all about, but they had not been saved and they had to come to a moment when they were saved. It's past tense. But wonderfully, it is also present tense. We have been saved. We are being saved day by day. The Bible calls it sanctification. We are made more and more like Christ as we walk along. And the wonderful thing is, it is also future tense. We shall be saved. Our salvation is not complete until we are glorified, until even this old body is resurrected and saved. And so uh, we uh, are closer now to 
the Lord than when we were first saved. So he says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the weapon of light. The weapon of light. Oh, what light God brings to life and what joy he brings to life. Put on the weapon of life. And so let us walk properly as in the day, not in a whole series of things here, not in revelry, not in drunkenness, not in lewdness, not in lust. That's one of the most vivid words in the New Testament. Asel Gaia. Just sounds evil, doesn't it? That's exactly right. Asel Gaia. Wickedness. Don't, don't walk in that lewdness and lust. Not in strife or envy, but instead... Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision to fulfill its lust. My student friend, I want to say to you today that you have come to a theological seminary. It is a school. It is not a church as such. But if I could do any one thing for every theological seminary in this world, if I could do it for our own seminary, I would move it as far as I could from being school, and I would make it as close as I possibly could to being church. You will see that that's essentially what we try to do here because I know that the most important preparation for your ministry is not classroom learning. The most critically important part of your preparation for the ministry that you have is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Most critical thing you can do in preparation is to prepare the heart. You can prepare the mind until you're the greatest scholar in the world and you will be in terms of eternity absolutely useless to the church of the living God. While you are here, I beg you, learn to walk with God. While you are here, I beg you to understand that the most important thing is the spiritual preparation of your life. I talked to you a moment ago about George K. Jacob. He was a man who was vicar of Trends, a small church in the Grissons in southern Switzerland. He was the son of a peasant. He had black hair and fiery eyes and an impulsive disposition. And he was amazed when he sat down with Zwingli because he said Zwingli saw the truth. There was no question that Zwingli understood the truth. But Zwingli was afraid to stand for the truth no matter what. It's an interesting critique that he made of Zwingli. Zwingli was a man who wasn't afraid to go on the field of battle. As a matter of fact, he ventured forth in the battle of Capel and lost his life in the process of it. He certainly was not a coward. He certainly was a, was a man of uh, strength, of character. And yet, Jacob says he is, in the final analysis, not a man of courage because he will not stand for what he understands to be the truth. Well, in the disputation that followed one day in Zurich, 
All of a sudden, he was not a part of it, but he stood up and began to speak and exhort those who were there. Somebody said, who was that that spoke? And they said, well, it was a man with a blue coat on. And that became his name. He was no longer known as George Jacob, but from then on known as Strong George Blaurock. Strong George the Blue Coat. And that blue coat he wore everywhere. And since he was an evangelist, I suppose he had white suede shoes too. I don't know. But in any event, uh, in that disputation of 1525, he stood out. Well, as the evangelist, the principal evangelist of the movement, he began to preach and to baptize all over the place. He went to Zalikon, not far from Zurich, and there he became pastor of the church. And uh, on many occasions, they saw people come to Christ. One night, for example, uh, a man by the name of Hans, who was a farmer in the community, became so deeply convicted as he listened to George Baurock preach that he fell on his knees and tears streaming down his face. He cried out, I am a great sinner. Can God help me? And Balrog knelt beside him and tenderly led him to faith in Jesus Christ. Man, you can't leave a guy like that loose. He is dangerous. He's reaching people for Christ. And so in the, in the companionship of Felix Mons, he was taken by the town in Zurich, and they were both tried. Both were found guilty, and Felix Mons, as many of you know, was drowned in the Lamont River as response. But it seems that they could not really do that to Blaurock because he was not a citizen of Zurich. So instead, they condemned him to be beaten with rods all the way as far as the fish gate. And so taking him at the head of a crowd of people, they literally beat him until he bled. The record says that the, that the river flowed with the blood of George Blaurock until he came to the fish gate. But then they let him go. Well, he was not to be deterred. As soon as he had healed, he was on the road again, telling the story of Jesus and, and telling people that they can be born again. And how they differed from the other reformers was that they literally took the gospel to all the world. As Sebastian Frank said of these Anabaptists, quote, the Anabaptists spread so rapidly that their teaching soon covered the land, as it were. They soon gained a large following and baptized thousands, drawing to themselves many sincere souls who had a zeal for God. They increased so rapidly that the world feared an uprising by them, though I have since learned that this fear had no justification whatever. Well, why didn't they, why didn't we know more about them all this time? The reason is that it became very costly to be an Anabaptist. The average lifespan of a man from the time he became an Anabaptist until he paid the ultimate price of the martyr's death was two years. And so it was difficult to write much history. But once again, George Blaurock was apprehended. And now in the town where he was serving as pastor, Clausen, which is now in Italy, he was apprehended by the authorities and he was condemned to be burned at the stake. On September the 6th, 1529, he was taken out and met his Lord 
as he was burned at the stake. But he was not without business to do that night before he died in the early morning. In the prison, he wrote the second of the hymns that appears in the Osbund, the hymn book of the Anabaptist. And fortunately, it was preserved. And so we have the stanzas, some 25 of them, that belong to the hymn he wrote that night. I'm not going to give you all of them. But I want you to hear the hymn of testimony, just three verses from it. Here is what Blaurock wrote. In the hours of the last day, as our turn must come, help us, Lord, to bear the cross out into the battlefield. Attend to us with all grace that we may be able to commend our spirit into your hands. Second verse. With all my heart, I pray to you for all our enemies, no matter how many of them there be, that you, O Lord, as is your wont, lay not their misdeeds to their charge. I pray you, may it come to pass according to your will, O God. What made them different? is that they even loved their enemies and prayed for them. Final stanza. And so I take my leave together with my companions. May God lead us by his grace into his kingdom that we may be in the faith, undoubting his holy work completing. And may he give us strength to the end. With those words in his heart, George Browrock paid the ultimate price. Evangelist, pastor, soul winner, missionary. He paid the price. The Anabaptists believe that you must be born again. You have to have an experience with Christ. But that after you're born again, people will be able to tell that you're different because of your attitudes and your outlook. Would you bow with me, please, as we pray? I know this is seminary, and I know this is the first day of the new year in seminary. I'm so grateful that you're here, but I would be remiss if I did not give you the opportunity to do the most important thing in the world. With nobody looking around, please, but just the president and God from heaven, has there been a time when Christ became real to you, when you really came to know him as your savior, when in heartfelt, brokenhearted repentance toward God, you said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Ever been a moment like that? Just before I voice our prayer to God, I want to ask, is there anybody here today who would just be willing to be totally truthful toward God and say, I have never done that. But today, to the best of my ability, I want to receive Christ as my Savior. Would you slip your hand up in the air? Just slip it up all over the auditorium. Today, I would like to receive Christ as my Savior. Anybody? 
we're going to pray. And then as we stand to sing, there'll be three or four of our professors right here at the front. If you today want to receive Christ as your Savior, you come. If you are here, but you realize that your life has not been characteristic of these Anabaptist forefathers and characteristic of what the Bible requires of us in the book of Romans, you just need to reconsecrate your life to the Lord at the first of the semester. You come and let one of these professors pray with you. Would you do that? Let's stand together as we pray. Everybody just stand together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much today for Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he not only saves us, but that he leads us in the process of sanctification. And Lord, I've so often failed you. And yet, Father, if it had not been for the presence of the Spirit of God, what an awful mess the world would have seen in me. And I thank you, Lord, for the sanctifying life of Christ the Word of God, and I thank you that not too long from now, I'll be in heaven with you and salvation will be completed. Father, I pray today for every young man and woman here, those who have never trusted you, may they be honest about it before God, because there's nothing in this world as important as that. Lord, help them to be willing to pray right this minute. Today, Lord, I receive you as my Savior. And Father, if they do that, then help them to slip out and come here and let us pray with them and walk with them in the next steps as they serve you. Father, there are many who are out of fellowship with God, even though they've come to seminary. May they be willing to say right now, I want to be right where I should be in the process of sanctification. God, help them today to make that decision. And so we commit this moment to you in Jesus' name we pray, and now we're going to sing.